Welcome to today's message from First Baptist Church in Divine, Texas, where our mission is to equip all generations to impact lives for Christ. You can find today's message and more information at www.fbcdivine.org. Now, let's listen to the latest teaching from First Baptist Church, Divine. This morning we read beginning in verse 1 of chapter 4 of Luke's Gospel. The word reads, And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for forty days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all, of, all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put your Lord God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation... He departed from him until an opportune time. This is the word of God for the people of God this Sunday morning. You know, like the good business folk that they are, when the folks out in Hollywood find a wave, they really know how to ride it. Have any of you ever seen any of the six Jurassic Park movies? And if you have, you have helped contribute to the now over $6 billion uh, franchise in total earnings. And I got to thinking about that, that franchise, Jurassic Park, and I was reminded that the original film released, was released back in 1993. And it occurred to me that I have reached the age that 1993 feels like just 10 years ago, maybe 15 years ago, tops. But it's been 30 years since 1993. And I realize that a part of y'all understand what I mean, and you're thinking, welcome to the club, and there's more of you who might be thinking, what is he talking about? And all I can say is you're going to be there one day. Now, I bring up the Jurassic Park franchise to tell you about a scene from that original movie. As the movie opens, it begins to fill in details about how this theme park filled with real-life dinosaurs comes to be after the amazing discovery of an amber stone that uh, preserved a mosquito whose belly was apparently, apparently filled with some dino blood. And after you sprinkle in some super smart geneticists, from one scene to the next, we've got a dozen different kind of ferocious dinosaurs roaming the planet once more. Before opening the park to the general public, the people who are making the theme park, they bring in some top dinosaur experts in the world to to tour it and to ask them to legitimize it with the extent of their approval. 
And so they fly these people in who have these, and, and you have these memorable scenes of humans laying eye on these ex- once extinct creatures from long ago. And the gnarliest of them all is a dinosaur that I am sure that none of us knew before 1993. That's the Velociraptor. And the movie bills the raptor as uh, the most athletic and the most intelligent and the most lethal of all the dinosaurs. And as the breed is introduced to the audience, uh, we find that they're not freely roaming around like the Tyrannosaurus rex or the Brontosaurus or the Stegosaurus. But rather, the raptors are confined to a prison for dinos whose perimeter fence and overhead cage are tensile wires that are, that are laid in a grid that are highly electrified. And at, to add to the mystery and danger of these dinos, well, the raptor expert is a Kenyan man with a British accent who explains that the sound of the electrical shocks and the background of the scene are because the raptors are frequently testing the perimeter fences for weaknesses, just checking for vulnerability, looking for any way to get through. Well, my friend, this morning I wonder, are you aware that there is more to this world than just you and your concerns and your priorities in it? I suspect that you'll spend this afternoon fulfilling your commitments. Some of you may run off to a baseball or softball or soccer field. Some of you will run home. Some of you will run to San Antonio. You'll spend your time this afternoon focusing on what you have prioritized, and then maybe your mind will maybe begin to shift to next week's worth of obligations. You may meal prep for the week. You may review your calendar and begin to start triaging your your priorities and tasks. Or you may pretend that that Monday's not really coming. There's a lot of people who do that these days. Until you're forced to wake up tomorrow morning at the sound of your alarm clock and face the week that you'd rather not face. You live. You live and you think that it's just you. It's just your family. Your work your school, your obligations, and that's it. You're completely unaware of the fact that there is a spiritual realm to God's creation, and I have got news for you. Not all the forces at play are friendly. Not all of them are good. No, the forces at play uh, are led by an adversary who is seeking to lure you in, to knock you off, to ruin you by testing your perimeter fences just like the raptors in their paddock at Jurassic Park. I'll tell you at the outset, our aim today is not to prove the existence that there is, to prove that there is a devil, as Peter describes, who is prowling around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. My aim is not to prove that to you. Now, the word of God that I've read for you makes it clear that there is an adversary who stands opposed to God, who stands opposed to God's purposes, who stands opposed to God's people. Now, our aim today is to answer the question, what defense is there for you and I? What defense is there from the enemy's attacks? This is a vitally important question that, as we seek to properly answer it, will challenge you and I this morning. 
Now, it's going to be less challenging for those of us who have never read this passage before and are just trying to make sense of what it means for the Holy Spirit to lead Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Pretty confusing. But it will be more challenging for those who are like me and know this to be a very familiar passage of Scripture that has been often preached or taught and cited in our past. I've got to tell you, familiarity is a dangerous thing. Familiarity can breed disrespect. An example of what I'm talking about is with familiarity is the fact that most car accidents occur within a few miles from a driver's home. You ever known that? You ever wondered about why that is? It's because the driver feels more relaxed while they're on their home turf. Their respect for the responsibility of driving diminishes. They can let their hair down if they have any hair to let down. And they can start to check those text messages and clear the notifications on social media. They know the way to and from home like the back of their hand. They tell themselves, you know, I could probably even drive this blindfolded. And that faulty self-confidence leads a driver to be more vulnerable to mistake. Familiarity is a dangerous thing. Familiarity, when we come to the Lord's table, when we come to the Word of God, can be dangerous, especially when it comes to God and the things of God. See, it would be a dangerous thing for you right now to just check out because you're familiar with this passage. And you tell yourself, you know, I've been around the Christian block. I've been a member of a Baptist church for 60 years. And you assume you already know where God's leading us this morning. You tell yourself you can check out because I've opened our time with this passage in a familiar way that maybe other preachers have, raising concern about the attacks of the devil. And your familiarity with this will lead you to believe that we're walking down a familiar path. Well, let me try to tell you about that familiar path. That familiar path has three legs to it. The first of which begins to express the defense that you and I need against the devil from the, the, the example that we find that Jesus is setting for us here. We begin by talking about how this passage in Luke chapter 4 opens after a, a significant spiritual event in the life of Jesus. That being his baptism in the Jordan River that was administered by his cousin John. We find in that passage from last week that there's this moment of great transcendence where we discover one of the few times in Scripture where there's a manifestation of the Trinity. We see the Son of God uh, being baptized to identify Himself with those He's been sent to redeem. We find the Spirit of God descending upon the Son. We find the Father expressing His verbal pleasure in the Son's progress towards God's plan of redemption and reconciliation. And so we often bring to our attention that when we encounter moments of great spiritual significance like the day of our salvation, or the day of our baptism, or some marked growth in the Lord, we bring to attention that immediately following that there's probably going to be some attack or some temptation from the devil. And so we look to the example of Jesus. And we see in the midst of a 40-day fast that the devil tempts Jesus to demonstrate his power 
First, by demonstrating an ability to turn a stone into bread to satisfy his physical need for food. And if we've ever maybe taken this text up in a Bible study, there's probably something like a heaping bowl of tortilla chips in front of us. And we don't really think about what bread means in that moment because our tummies are full. And so we choose to chase every rabbit tail about the subject of fasting, maybe. See, fasting sounds mysterious and something like the spiritual elite do. So we first explore whether it, if it's even commanded for the Christian to do in the Bible. And depending on where we wind up with that question, we deliberate about how long a proper fast is to go. Or, and, and the fast still counts. Is it half a day, full day, three days? What is it? You know, I've been in those. Of course, the last question that comes to, to the conversation comes, or also comes to be, you know, what can we actually still consume and it be counting towards a fast? And that question comes from the fact that we're so hawked up on caffeine from Starbucks that we want to know if our shot of Joe is going to break the fast. And someone eventually plays the parental role by cautioning everyone to check with their doctors before fasting. Mostly because we live in a sue-happy world and we would never want any responsibility or liability coming back our way. And these types of questions go on and on until the Bible study leader realizes that half of the group has become disinterested. And that, that leader tries to, to bring the conversation back to the example of Jesus by calling attention to the fact in the face of temptation, Jesus quotes Scripture. And the leader then takes a few minutes uh, speaking to the fulfillment that exists at, when believers uh, turn to the Word of God. So everyone jots down two things in the margin of their Bible or their journal. They write down two things like this. You know, I ought to need to love, I ought to love the Bible more. And the second thing they probably write down is, I should probably try to memorize some verses of the Bible. And then that trip, down that path, picks back up, and the sermon or the lesson or conversation moves on to the second leg. And we find that after stifling the devil's first temptation, we see the example from Je Jesus of a temptation that can trip so many of us up on. The, the devil leads Jesus up to some grand high point where they could overlook all the kingdoms of the world. And the devil, in effect, says, you know, you can skip out on all of that suffering and dying, and I can give you the world right now. And that's why the Father sent you here in the first place, right? For you to win the world? I mean, man, I can gift wrap it for you right now. You just got to acknowledge me. You just got to submit to me. You just got to worship me. And eyes open wide with the thought of Jesus potentially doing that, don't they? And we find relief where, uh, when faithful Jesus yet again quotes the Bible back to the devil from memory. And since we already have that note in our margins or in our, in our journals about memorizing verses, we put a, maybe a star or a ticky mark out to the side to reinforce that this is something we really need to start doing. And maybe we start to talk about the dangers of pursuing notoriety or pursuing fame and or pursuing power in our lives, particularly after the eye-opening moments of awareness that those things don't always come from God. They don't, but they can come from the devil. 
So we jot down in our margins. Now a third thing, maybe that we need to check our heart and question our motivation behind doing whatever it is that we're doing. And we think about the places we serve in church or in the community or where we're working in our careers or even how we manage our social media presence. And we fall under conviction that maybe we haven't been living humbly enough. And then the trip moves down to that final leg of the path and we pick up where uh, now we see the example where Jesus is led by the devil to the pinnacle of the place of worship in Jewish, Jewish life. This last temptation calls for Jesus to demonstrate before everyone that he is God's Messiah. And so doing by forcing God's hand of protection upon him to preserve his life. And this time, oh, that devil, he ups his game. He ups his game and he quotes scripture to Jesus to, put a, to, to up the ante a bit. But Jesus doesn't succumb to that temptation. Oh, he overcomes it by properly quoting the Bible about how no one is to put God to the test. Then the preacher or the Bible study leader or somebody winds things up, calls everybody to trust in God, tells everybody to never dare question or test the Lord based on the example of Jesus. And so as good Bible students as we are, we go back to that that margin or to that journal, we add another star off to the side to that note about memorizing verses. And maybe we add now a fourth note. You need to have just a bit more faith, a little more faith. And if you've assumed that I would take you down that path, you'd be wrong. I've had to speak to that path because I needed everyone to see how a forest can be missed for the trees. You've heard of that expression before, haven't you? That saying that you can miss the forest for the trees. It's an expression that means that by only focusing on but a few parts, you and I can lose a sense of appreciation for what's happening on the whole. See, far too often we approach the word of God with familiarity and we focus on a few parts and we miss the grand sweep of it all. And I've got to tell you, what I am talking about right now, missing the forest for the trees, looking at the details and missing the big picture, is why there are churches in this country who are breaking up over the question of sexuality. It's why if you've been reading the church health survey that we conducted some months ago, our, our, our brothers and sisters can say that in worship, we feel the presence of God. And yet we have disagreement about the style of music. For far too long, a passage like the one that we're considering this morning has been preached and it has been taught and it has been discussed. And we look at the Jesus here as an example. In other words, we take from this word of God that we just need to be more like Jesus. We need to fast more. We need to memorize more. We need to be humbled more and so on and so forth. So that if we were to approach the Bible genuinely with this mindset, we might read from verse 1 where it says, And Jesus, we can say, And Dan, filled with the Holy Spirit, led by the Spirit, we would be in great error. We read the Bible. Here's a $10 word for you. We read the Bible anthropocentrically, not Christocentrically. Or said another way, we look for our 
our place first in the Bible, and we don't look for what the Bible says about Jesus. We do this because we look out for ourselves first. We look out for our interests first. This is, this is, this is the core issue of sin in each of our hearts. And if you think I'm a miss right now, tell me. When you're with your family in some living room or some porch and someone's got a, a photo album and you're flipping through the pictures from the past, who is it that you're looking for first in the photo? You. You do it every time. I do. I look for this face in every picture that I expect myself to have been captured in. And my friends, this is to our detriment. This is the very reason why humanity is in the predicament that it's in. This is why we have to train ourselves to read the Bible with the aim of answering, what does this say about Jesus? You read in Leviticus, everyone's favorite book in the Bible to read. What does it say about Jesus? Not what does it say about you? Because if we approach this passage differently, if we approached it with a proper focus, we begin to take in the forest for the whole. If we start with that note that we made for ourselves in the margin of our Bibles, that note about the need to memorize Scripture, yes, with each temptation, Jesus quotes Scripture. But as we saw in the third temptation, the devil can do that just as easily. What's more important is to ask, what scripture is it that Jesus is quoting? What scripture is it? And ask, why is he quoting it? And if we begin to answer those questions, you will find that each of Jesus' answers to the temptations of the devil is a quotation from the book of Deuteronomy. And I'll tell you, the word Deuteronomy means literally the second law. In other words, the book is a restatement of God's law that was given through Moses. It's the law which God gave for man to live by. So by quoting this book, Jesus is saying to that devil of hell, you're saying to me that by feeding my body, that it matters more than obeying God. But God has told men and women that they shall not live by bread alone. So I will not live by bread alone. He tells that devil, you offer me power over all, the, uh, at, over all at the cost of worshiping you. But God has told men and women that they should not worship anyone or anything but him. So I won't do anything but that. He tells the devil, you suggest that I should test the promises of God to suit me. But God has said that men and women should not test him in that way. And because God has said it, I will obey it. What is Jesus doing? Jesus is deliberately emptying himself of his power. He's emptying himself of his glory by putting himself in the position of a man. A man who is under the authority of the word of God. That's what Paul is teaching when we record in Philippians chapter 2. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient. What is Jesus doing? Jesus is going right back to the beginning of the Bible. He's going right back to square one. Jesus 
is the new Adam. He's the new Adam. You remember Adam, don't you? Adam being the first man, the man who was set in the garden of Eden by God. Adam in Eden who enjoyed the fruit of the garden that was watered by a river that ran through it. Adam, who was even given a companion in Eve, the woman he would say is his bone of bones and flesh of flesh. Adam, who was the head of the human race. Adam, who chose to disobey God when the tempter came. Adam, who denied the adequacy of all that the garden provided to include the very presence of God. Think about the dreadfulness of this. Adam knew the presence of God that no one else can know until Jesus returns to make everything new. And in his disobedience, Adam caused the whole of mankind to start off on the wrong track. The track of sin and death. And you and I, my friends, we can do nothing to get off that track. We can't do enough to get off the track. There's no self-help books. There's not 10 steps to something better here. We have to look beyond ourselves for help. We have to look to Jesus. And so Luke presents to us Jesus. The second Adam. The better Adam. Jesus is alone. Jesus is led by the Holy Spirit to a land that is barren, to be confronted by the tempter. Yet the outcome of the devil's interaction with this Adam, it ain't going to be like the first. No, this second Adam, this Jesus, he's not going to fall to temptation. Jesus is not going to fall to sin. Jesus will win. Jesus will be the totally obedient man with a capital M. Jesus will be, a, will be man as man was meant to be. Jesus will be man who is altogether righteous. Jesus will be man who never loses his relationship with God because of sin. Jesus can disarm and defeat and overcome the devil because of his undeviating obedience to the will of God. An obedience that the Bible also says is an obedience to the point of death, even death on a cross. And this makes Jesus different, altogether different. Jesus is different than Adam. Jesus is different than you and me. Jesus is God's image and God's wisdom and God's mystery. Jesus is king of all. Jesus is the king of of fresh starts. And we're just at the beginning of what God is telling us through Luke about Jesus, the Son of God, the King of all, and the Savior of souls. And this testing of Jesus comes at the start of His ministry, and the final crucial conflict yet awaits Him. The devil withdraws from the wilderness, looking forward to an opportune time, as it says. And for the devil, he doesn't know it, But the writing is on the wall. For when tempted, Jesus did not falter like Adam. He did not. My friend, Jesus is never going to falter. He's never going to fail. He's never going to do anything in that way because he is God. And God himself is who goes to and through a terrible, bloody cross 
Not so he can be your example, my friends. Jesus ain't your example. No, God goes to and through a bloody cross so he can be the Savior to whomsoever would come to him in faith. That's what God does. I suggested that our aim was to answer where you and I can find defense against the enemy's attacks. Our only defense is the instrument that God used to defeat the power of evil and death. Our defense is the cross of our King. My friend, have you come to see that you give into temptation far more than you care to admit? Are you overwhelmed with the weight of your sin? I've got to tell you, since Jesus is the better Adam, since Jesus is the second Adam, since Jesus is the king of fresh starts, you need to trust in him and none other. In Jesus, humanity can begin to see what we might be when we are in Christ. In Jesus, we can begin to see all things. Don't think for a moment that you cannot come to the cross of Jesus Christ. Do not think that you cannot come to receive the protection of God, the healing of God, and the restoration of God. We sing a song around here that's called Room at the Cross, and it opens with this. The cross upon which Jesus died is a shelter in which we can hide. And it's grace so free, sufficient for me, and deep is its fountain, as wide as the sea. My friends, take shelter in no place other than the cross of the King of Fresh Starts, King Jesus. Defense against the attacks of the accuser and the tempter is only found in that cross. And if you agree that we have far too often fallen to looking for ourselves in Scripture rather than looking for Jesus and what Scripture tells us about Him, well, then you already know what you need to change when you read the Bible. And if we're not looking for the very reason why God has given us His Word, why God has given us the Bible, then we're missing the fact that he has given it to us so that we might know the Savior of the world whose name is Jesus. And if we have missed that, then we have also got to confess and repent of the so many ways where we prioritize ourselves over Jesus and his kingdom when we gather as a church family. Today is a day that we call Fifth Sunday Jubilee. It's a day we intentionally set aside to gather as God's people for fellowship and worship and rest. So let me leave you with a question to consider. And this is something you can refer to for discussion at your lunch or supper table today. It should be something that you take to prayer. I'm going to ask, do not try to qualify the question. Don't try to explore the nuances or the exceptions or whatever it is your mind might want to do to find fault in the question, okay? This is the question I leave to you. Is my life Jesus-centered? Thank you for tuning in to this message brought to you by First Baptist Church Divine, located at 308 West Hondo Avenue in Divine, Texas. We invite you to be our guests at our 8.30 a.m. or 11 a.m. services each Sunday. You can find more information about First Baptist Church Divine at www.fbcdivine.org where our mission is to equip all generations to impact lives for Christ. Until next time, 
May God bless you and keep you.